Good morning. Our scripture reading today is Isaiah 49 through 31. And while you're turning there, just like to say a thank, quick little thank you to Aaron here. Uh, first couple weeks of this month, he just gave me a, a handful of verses to read, and today I get to read almost a full chapter. So thanks for the vote of confidence. <laughs> so, Isaiah 49 through 31. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lamb in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, or who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom, then, will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do not, or do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understand since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. A whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them forth each by their name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even the youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on the wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint." You would join me in prayer.
Dear Heavenly Father, you are all-powerful, even beyond our comprehension. It often makes our heads hurt just to try to comprehend the vastness of your power, Lord. We are just the tiniest little blip on your heavenly radar. Uh, But even though you are great and awesome, you still invite us to call you Father. And you love us like we were the only person in the whole universe. And we always maintain our reverence for you, knowing how majestic you are. Uh, But at the same time, know that you are there whenever we call. You are mighty to save, Lord. Bless Pastor Aaron as he brings his message. And may we all be blessed through your word that he brings. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Aaron. And yes, I do have trust in you, brother. (laughs) I knew you could do it. You know, I love that passage in Psalm 40 or Isaiah 40 because um, it really just kind of puts us in our place. You know, it really, uh, as Isaiah the prophet is, is reminding Jacob or also synonymous with Israel of who their God is. And as God, as a comparison to all the other nations and all that is transpiring in all the other nations, who is like our God? And the answer is equivocally, no one. There's nothing that compares to the God of Jacob, to the God of Israel. Not to make it light of that, but I could not help myself this morning, but... um there's a, I don't know if you've seen this on a t-shirt or seen it going around on social media or not, but uh, you got a bunch of superheroes, and then there's Jesus in the middle saying, and that's how I save the world. I don't know if you've seen that or not. Some of you might actually call that irreverent. I don't know. Um, I'm sorry in advance, I guess. Um, but here's the deal. One of the joys of raising boys is the fact that superheroes are kind of a normal part of our life. You know, Spider-Man, Superman, Batman, I guess they're all men. Uh, there's also Wonder Woman and stuff too, but um, they don't really hang out with Wonder Woman a whole lot right now. But the joys of raising boys is just how, how they think of Jesus, Right? Their, their minds, are, their, the lens that they look through in life is oftentimes just how they view Jesus, and, and it's, it's, it's quite fun because, for example, um, you know, when we'll be discussing something maybe as a family or they'll get wind of me and Abby talking about something difficult in life, and then Josh, you know, even though he seems to not listen at other times, he just happens to hear what we're saying at that moment, and he says, but not for Jesus, Right? We're like, we're thinking, man, this is really hard. How are we going to go through it? He's like, but it's not hard for Jesus, right? Or, or when we're discussing how, how strong someone is in the world, Josh pulls the ultimate trump card and says, but Jesus is stronger, right? He's got all the powers. And he knows something. Those comments are kind of laughable in the moment. But sometimes seeing and relating to God much like a child, maybe one of the most beneficial practices, one of the most beneficial ways to have our confidence that, that, that God is more than able, that God is more than willing. 
You see, so often, uh, you know, we as adults, we can either celebrate or we can decry the power struggles that exist in our world, the power struggles that exist in our government or our city or our place of employment or even our family. And yet sometimes it's helpful to view these realities through the lens of a child, right? Even Jesus acknowledges that in his ministry when he says, let the little children come to me. For such, it's really those who belong to the kingdom of heaven are like these. You must enter the kingdom of heaven much like a child, fully dependent upon one's father. And so the perspective of a child is this. You know, we, we sometimes look from an adult point of view or adult perspective, and we can kind of vacillate back and forth emotionally or whatever it may be, but a child sometimes says this, regardless of what's happening, God is way stronger. He has all the powers. He can do anything. But can he? Can God really do anything? Does God really have all the powers? Is he limited in any way? You know, when we have questions, especially as they pertain to God and what he is like, the best thing we can do for ourselves, the best thing we can do to serve our, our own inquiry is to search the scriptures and see what the scriptures have to say about God. In other words, how does God reveal himself and describe himself is really given to us through his divine revelation to us. So let's, let's dive in and see what scripture says about God, especially about God's power and about his ability in his creation. You know, when Jesus explained how difficult it was for a rich man to enter into heaven in Matthew 19, he said this to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Or listen to what the angel says to Mary, the mother of Jesus, in Luke chapter 1, when, he, when he's, the angel says this, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So again, we ask those questions at the very beginning, right? Like, is, is God limited in any way? Does God ha- is his power limited in, you know, as you and I, are, our ability and our powers are limited? Does God have limitations like us? Well, what does the scripture say right up front? With God, nothing is impossible. You and I as human beings, we have lots of limitations, Right? You and I are significantly limited based on our own ability. Some of us have more abilities than others, but in the end, we all fall short, right? We all have uh, circumstances in our life that we cannot actually control, even if we wanted to, but not so with God. God is not limited by anything. Nothing is impossible with God. What else does Scripture say? 
We'll look at Paul's prayer to all believers that they would be strengthened, strengthened with power from the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Here we learn that God is not limited by our, you know, like our, by our short-sighted requests or our short-sighted thoughts. In fact, he exceeds anything that we could think about or even ask for or hope for. This is what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. He says, he's able to do far more abundantly all we can ask or all that we can think. So whatever comes to your mind, God is able to do more. As much as you think or how much you think the solution is to your certain situation or whatever it may be, God is able to do more, far more abundantly than than you could even fathom in your thought process. Or consider what Job's friend Zophar asks Job in Job chapter 11. Zophar asks this of Job, "Can, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Here we see that Zophar is asking Job some rhetorical questions implying that the power of God has depths that cannot be discovered and limits that cannot be reached. David reiterates the same understanding in Psalm 145.3 when he says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Or look at Isaiah chapter 40 as we just read. Have you not known, have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. You see, Isaiah teaches us that God's power cannot be depleted. Not only is nothing impossible with God, but God's power cannot be depleted. You know, you and I, we get depleted, right? Am I the only one that acknowledging that right now? Are we just, I know you're depleted. You're so quiet right now. I've already put you to sleep. You and I get depleted in life, right? Especially when you're a, a, when you got young kids, you definitely get depleted. And by the end of the day, you're like, <sighs> I mean, my wife and I used to have a lot of evening time, real productive evening time, really heart-to-heart conversations in the evening. Now the kids are in bed and we just fall to bed <laughs> and we make it to bed. And it's like, oh man, I'm tired. And of course, as grandparents, not that I can speak firsthand necessarily, but I know as grandparents, as you've re- reiterated to me, it, it's like it only gets worse in a sense. The energy level goes down and you watch these young kids running out of here for children's church and you're like, remember when I had energy like that? Wasn't that amazing? What happened? That stamina kind of starts to wane over time, Right? Or consider athletes. You know, every athlete has a point in their athletic career where they're at the, the top of their game, right? The prime of their life or the prime, prime of their athletic career. And, and, uh, but the problem is no one actually stays there. 
No athlete stays in a prime, the prime of their uh, athletic career. Eventually, they slow down. They become increasingly less agile. They become stiffer, and eventually they become more of a historical memory than a current celebrity. But not so with God Almighty. You see, God doesn't become tired at the end of the day or at the end of the century for that matter. His ability to act doesn't ebb and flow. God's, God is eternally at the top of his game and his power never lessens. It doesn't increase either because God is already infinitely powerful, the scripture tells us. Not only is God's power infinite, but his power is also eternal, meaning it never ends. His infinite power refers to the fact it is max. His eternal power means it never ends. This is what Paul refers to in Romans 1.20. For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. You know, sometimes all we need to do is stop long enough in our busy lives and just to pause and take in God's creation. I love the, the season that we're now kind of have entered into, right? The night's getting darker. The stars are out when there's no overcast. And you start seeing gazillion stars in the sky, you know? And sometimes if you look long enough, you might see a shooting star. And it's fun to be out there with the kids just kind of staring up in the sky and going, man, I'm really small. I am so small in comparison to God's incredible creation. And yet God is the one who called that into existence. And he declares his glory, and he even says, and I created you special in my image for a very eternal purpose. You know, when we refer to God, uh, when we refer to this, we, we, we just need to understand that God's power is eternal. Only an eternal God with all power could create all this. I think another aspect of God's power is described in Psalm 135, verses 5 and 6. David says this, For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord that is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and in seas and in all the deeps. What David is referring to is he's referring to God's sovereignty in all his creation. And we'll discuss sovereignty at the end of November when we wrap up this series on God's attributes. So I'm not going to dive into it right now, but we just need to understand that God isn't just powerful, but he is also sovereign in all his creation. Let me make a distinction for us. When we refer to God's power, what we are referring to is God's ability to do as he wishes. God's power refers to his ability to do as he wishes, but his sovereignty refers to his right to do as he wishes. That's the, distinguishing, the, the distinction between power and sovereignty. Again, we'll discuss that more in detail at the end of November when we wrap up our series. Now you know when we're going to be done with the series. Let me... Let me let me express one more passage of Scripture. David asked a rhetorical question in Psalm 89, verse 6. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Or who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? And this should be obvious by now, but David proclaims that God's power is incomparable. 
that God is in a category all his own, that no one can compare to God's greatness. You know, Satan tried, right? Satan tried to think, I can be like God, and we see how that played out, right? He tried to be like God, who was incomparable, and as a result, he is forever separated from God and forever under God's judgment just for attempting to be like God. You know, the, the summary term that theologians have created to describe God's unlimited and infinite power is what we call omnipresence. Last week, we talked about God's, uh, excuse me, omnipotence. I'm getting confused here. Last week, we talked about God's omnipresence. Did we? Or is that next week? We're talking about a lot of omnis. <laughs> and I'm obviously omniscient to remember all that. Yeah, we talked about God's omnipresence. Next week, we'll talk about God's omniscience, which is his all knowledge. This morning, we're talking about his omnipotence, which means he has all ability. God is all powerful in his creation. You see, from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Revelation chapter 22, we see that throughout the, the span of God's revelation to us as his people, it is a revelation of God's power to create. All of Scripture is a revelation of God's power to, to protect, to deliver, to open barren wombs, to redeem, to bless, to guide, to provide, to restore, to care for, to save, and to promise a determined outcome at the end of days. In other words, we do not have time this morning to exhaustively unpack what it means that God is all-powerful. But that being said, I would like to draw specific attention to three prominent examples of God's power. Three ways that God manifests His power to us. One of the most prominent ways that God has manifested His power to you and to me and to all the world is in the person of Jesus Christ. Just think about this for a moment. The whole person of Jesus Christ, his ministry here on earth. First of all, we look at the conception of Jesus, right? And not to get all uh, too detailed here, but the fact is, the way that Jesus was conceived was like none other. He was conceived... Mary was conceived, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. No one prior to Jesus ever experienced such a miraculous feat, and no one ever will from that point on. Jesus is unique in that he was born of the Holy Spirit through Mary's womb so that Jesus, the Son of God, might clothe himself with a body. Speaking of Jesus clothing himself with a body, think about this. The fullness of God dwells bodily in Jesus Christ. Isn't that crazy? I mean, we're talking about an incomprehensible, eternal, infinite God. And he rests in the body of Jesus Christ. You see, the Son of God has eternally pre-existed in the triunity of God. Jesus, God, the Son of God, has always been, and for such a time as this, on God's redemptive rescue mission of people, Jesus comes and clothes himself with a body, and yet he not only is fully human, but he is still fully God. 
As was already read earlier, but I'll read it again. Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Or think about the obedience of Jesus. You know, you and I, I think it's easy to think that Jesus is not that relatable. And the reason that we think that maybe Jesus is not very relatable is because, well, he's the God-man, right? He's the Son of God, and therefore he's not really like us. Yes, we know that he has a body, but you know he's very much not like us. And so we may think that Jesus' obedience to his Father came easy to him, unlike our struggle in obedience. But that would be a false or wrong understanding. You see, Jesus was perfectly obedient to his Father, not because he was already perfect and not because he didn't have a sin nature. That's not the the full understanding of how and why Jesus was obedient to his Father. Now, what empowered Jesus in perfect obedience to his Father was that he lived and he served out of continual surrender to his Father in all things. That was the basis of Jesus' obedience. Yes, he was still deity. Yes, he was still the Son of God. That acts as more like a firewall that would almost enable him to not sin, but he did not depend upon his deity for obedience. He depended upon the fact that he surrendered all the time, at every moment of his life and ministry to his Father and ultimately to the will of his Father. I mean, was Jesus tempted in his life and ministry? 100%, absolutely. Did he feel rejection or feel loneliness? You bet. Did he experience physical uh, pain or rela- and relational pain? You bet. Was he ever angry? Absolutely. And this is why, as Hebrews 4 tells us, we do have a great high priest who can relate to us in all aspects of life, especially those aspects of life that cause us to sin, and yet Jesus is without sin. How? How is this possible? How did Jesus, how was Jesus tempted in every respect and not be sinful? Because he lived and he functioned out of a continual surrender to his Father's will in all things. One of the clearest examples of this is when when Jesus rebukes Peter in Matthew 26. You you might recall the the scene here. You know, Jesus is already being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, of course, Peter has this kind of zealous moment for a second, pulls out a sword and and hacks off the ear of the the high priest's servant, right? And Jesus kind of just picks up the ear, puts it back on, and says, Peter, put your sword away. Those who live by the sword, guess what? Ultimately die by the sword. So put your sword away. And then he asks this question, or he just kind of poses this reality. He says, don't you know that I could call 12 legions of angels and my father will answer me? And by the way, all the struggle immediately goes away. Jesus had the power and authority to avoid the cross to bypass the cross and destroy all his enemies, but he didn't. Why? 
Because he lived and he functioned out of a continual surrender to his father so that his father's will would be fulfilled. What does he pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? Not my will, but your will be done. Is it any different for you and for me? Is, our, is the means by which we strive after obedience any different? Some of us in here might be uh, incredibly uh, in an incredible season of struggle right now with maybe a particular addiction or sin or whatever it may be. And may I say to you, the power to overcome sin in your life isn't trying harder. You've already done that and proven that to be ineffective. No, the power to overcome sin in your life is as Jesus modeled to us. He lived and he functioned out of a continual surrender to his Father. And he modeled for us, this is what we have been called to as well. This is how we live and experience the abundant life through a life of surrender. What does Jesus say in different words, but meaning the same thing? Die so that you may live. Die to yourself every single day, and then you will experience the abundant life that he offers freely. Unless you die, you cannot experience the joy and the peace and the life that God promises. Another aspect of God's power manifested in the person of Jesus Christ is really by his resurrection as well. Listen to what, look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, For our sake, not for his sake, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That him is referring to Jesus. That he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. This means that for Jesus to be resurrected from the dead, he had to have satisfied the wrath of God for the sin of all people, past, present, and future. And so while Lazarus being resurrected from the dead in John chapter 11 was pretty amazing in and of itself, we see that Jesus' resurrection is even more amazing because it tells us that he, he, he had victory over sin and death. It wasn't that just God brought him back to life, but it tells us that he has conquered. It is done. When Jesus cried on the cross, it is finished. That's exactly what he meant. It is finished. And this is why our victory over sin does not rest on our fight against sin. Let me just say that. I'm going to slow down here a second. Your victory over sin does not rest or depend on your fight against sin. That doesn't mean that we don't fight and struggle and strive. But your victory over sin does not depend upon your fight against sin. You always fall short. We always fail. We always struggle. No, your victory over sin depends on and rests in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. 
You see, the only hope that you and I have in our struggle against sin is that Jesus has already overcome, that he has already conquered, that he has already defeated the power of sin and death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, for sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Father, we just thank you so much for loving us. You loved us in such a way that you sent your Son to be the Savior of the world. And we thank you, Jesus, for doing the hard thing. Not only for clothing yourself with a a limited human body, but you modeled what it meant to walk this walk of faith, this life of faith in perfect obedience to God the Father. Thank you for making it possible to walk in newness of life, to live out of a victorious life because we are daily surrendering. Father, if that isn't true of us right now, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would awaken our hearts and even give us the ability to pursue you and to walk in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. There's another way that God's power is manifested, and that is that God's power is manifested in your salvation. Let me just say this very quickly and clearly. Your salvation was not your choice. What? I thought I chose. Well, there was a part or role that you played, but your salvation was not your choice. Your salvation was God's choice, and your salvation was a divine act of grace and mercy by God toward you, upon which you responded in faith. It was all God from the very beginning, and we are just proud recipients. Even the ability to respond is given to us by God. I love this passage in Ephesians 2. You probably know it well. We're going to work through it, but it is loaded. It's actually worth memorizing at some point. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Once you were dead. Yep. We are all born spiritually dead. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and because of your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we are, subject, we are subject to God's anger, just like everyone else but God. Oh, brothers and sisters, you know, I know we probably don't need much reminding of this, but in, that same, in the same breath, we need constant reminding of this. Whenever we see but God, pay attention. 
But God, who is so rich in mercy, he loved us so much, and even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you have been saved. By, by God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take any credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for good things we have done, so none of us can boast about anything. I appreciate what Paul Washer, he said it well in a succinct manner when he said this, we must refuse to lean upon the broken staff of human wisdom. You and I must refuse to lean upon the broken staff of human wisdom and cling to the gospel alone as the power of God to save a hardened humanity. Your only hope in life is what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. It is only finished for you when you have responded in faith and said, Lord, forgive me. It's available to all, but it's only effective toward those who respond in faith and receive the gift of eternal life. And not only did God initiate your salvation, not only did he start the process or get the ball rolling, but Scripture also teaches us that God will also complete your salvation all the way to glorification. Isn't that crazy? So God's just not like, well, I, I started it, you know, you figure it out. He's saying, no, I started it, and I'm also going to complete it. This is what Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so we see that salvation is another profound manifestation of God's power, a power that awakened a dead soul and breathed into it eternal life. Let me put this in the most simple or practical terms. You do not need a drugs to Jesus story to have an amazing testimony. You don't need to have this, oh, this is what my life was like, and we're like, oh, wow, that's really bad. And you go, but then, but God. And it's like that we celebrate that but God moment in your life. But the fact is, every single person, regardless of their resume of unfortunate achievements before Christ, regardless of that, every salvation is a miracle. Every salvation, if you are a son or a daughter in the kingdom of, in the kingdom of heaven, it is miraculous. It is the power of God to save. It took just as much power to save you as the one who was addicted in their drugs in whatever life. It doesn't matter. The point is, everyone is born dead and is only alive because Jesus makes it so. So the only appropriate response is to say, Lord, thank you for doing for me what I could never do for myself. Third and finally, real quickly, a third way that God manifests his power is in the context of struggle, not in the absence of struggle. You see, much of Scripture, not all, but much of Scripture points to God's power in the context of struggle. I mean, yes, you can look at Genesis 1 and 2, and it reveals God's creative power. And you can look at uh, Colossians 1, for example, tells us that God sustains all creation by his power. And you can look at Exodus, and you see how God has led his, first of all, delivered his people from uh, Egypt, but led them to the promised land. But the point is, 
God's power, more often than not, is manifest through the context of struggle. You see, many of us, we want to see God's power on display. We want to be an eyewitness to His power. We, we want to experience the, the miraculous in our life, either in our life specifically or vicariously in the life of another person. And oftentimes we want God's power to be manifested in a way that keeps us from harm, that keeps us from conflict, that protects us from hardship. But let me ask you this question. If God's power was manifested primarily when life is good, from your perspective, or if God's power was manifested by keeping us from traveling down the road of suffering, would we actually recognize God's power in the first place? If everything was good in your life, would you go, man, that's because God made my life really good? No, what? Our fickle nature as human beings does this. Well, life is good because, well, I'm responsible and I'm disciplined. And, and, and I, my wise decisions and my hard work that granted me this success, and, and, and it was my actions that kept us safe, and it was my physical discipline that kept me from illness, and the list may go on. But what does Scripture teach us about God's power? It teaches us that it is displayed in our weakness, that God's power is visible because of our struggle. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, what he called a thorn of the flesh, and that it should leave me. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Brothers and sisters, let me make it very personal for us in here this morning. How are you responding in the midst of your current struggle? I'm not saying that we're all struggling in the same way here this morning, but I'm also not naive to the fact that we all struggle in our own way. But how are you responding in light of your current struggle? Or how will you respond when the next crisis hits you or your family? My prayer for you is this. That when, not if, but when the next struggle or the current struggle that you are currently navigating through hits, I pray your response will be much like the prophet Habakkuk who says this, even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, and even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, the context here is like, nothing good is happening in my life right now. 
the favor of the Lord does not seem to be upon me right now. This is his response. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as a sure fo- as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. You see, the most effective response in the midst of, of your struggle is not just that you would pray for deliverance, though we should pray for those things. We should pray that God would deliver. But it is also a response of worship. A response of worship to the one who is worthy. To praise the one who has the power to change our circumstances in a split second. You see, worship keeps you focused on God and not your circumstances. How tempting it is, right, to be so hyper-focused on what ails you or troubles you, and yet worship is the means that takes our focus off, not because we're trying to turn a blind eye, not because we're trying to avoid what's reality, but because our greatest need in that moment is to have more of God, that God would be so consuming in our life that everything else pales in comparison What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 4? I don't lose heart. I don't become discouraged because there there awaits me an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. And so Paul's like, hey, whatever happens in this life, it does not even compare. And so he is able to rejoice. You see, worship reignites our trust in a sovereign, the sovereign control of God. Worship is the means by which we resist the lies and the distorted thoughts of the devil. Worship confounds those who observe you in your struggle. Who knows? Just by the fact that you are able to rejoice in the midst of great struggle literally could change everyone around you. Think about Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail, right? They're shackled up falsely accused, unfairly treated, who knows what's going to happen next. And they're not wallowing in self-pity. They are singing, and God delivers. And it changes in a child, not just the, jail, the, the people in prison, but the jailer and everybody. Everyone is eternally changed for the glory of God. How might God influence those around you by your response of worship in the midst of your struggle? How might the power of God be manifested through your life because you chose to worship instead of complain? The fact is, brothers and sisters, all creation declares the greatness and the glory And the power of God. But the question I want you that I want percolating in your mind is this How is God's manifest how is God manifesting his power in me? How is his power being displayed through me? One of the greatest services that we can do for ourselves is just again. Take our, put our focus back on God and say, but God, this is who you are. This is who you are. 
And through that lens, we are better able to respond to the struggles that we currently face in life. 